Hello, and welcome back to A Soldier, A Sailor and A Scientist. This week, Peter Roberts and I talk to Stephen Mears about artificial intelligence. He starts by telling us how he ended up working at DSTL. Enjoy. <laughs> so that's a kind of a funny story, actually. So I was doing a PhD down at um, Southampton University, and one day I found a copy of the New Scientist um, that had been left around in my in the common room at the at the at the university. And on the back page, there was this uh, advert for a job doing um, sonar analysis at, 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 at DSTL. I thought, God, that looks amazing. I want to. I'm going to. I'm going to chuck my chuck my name in for that. Um, went through all the interview, kind of first day in the office, really excited, walked into this like super secret, secure office and found one of my PhD supervisors sat in there. And it turned <laughs> out the whole time I've been doing my PhD, I could never find him on a Friday. And the reason was he was up at DSTL and taking some of like the exciting research that he was doing and applying it to real data sets. And I said to him, you didn't leave a copy of the new scientist hanging around in the common room, did you? Know Just in case. Might have done. Yeah. yeah. So... Anyway, so yeah, that's kind of where my career started, was um, looking at sonar off submarines, um, and over the years, kind of data, and whether that's data from submarines, data from satellites, data from all kinds of sensors in the battlefield, that's kind of been the sort of the golden thread in my career that's led me now to work on AI. But it's something that's evolved massively, right? I mean, you know, d- data sets, for example, people now talk about clean and dirty data sets. They talk about the number of data sets they can take in. It, it feels almost like a, like a natural evolution, isn't it? It's sort of moving from data science into AI, or is there a magic leap? <laughs> Absolutely not. So I would say um, 80% of every AI project I've worked on has been about the data. Um, you know, really digging into your data, telling you is really important. People get really excited about AI and it is, it's a really exciting area. I love the the, the the job I do, but really AI is like the icing on top of the cake. The cake is made out of data. And that, and that's really difficult, isn't it? But I mean, I just remember for, you know, from a naval career where there were, that we should have had loads of databases to populate, you know, mm. that would make systems work better, but we're not really very good at populating databases, but they are, as you say, absolutely crucial, aren't they? But when you move on, this sort of move from databases has then sort of gone through AI, and we'll come to what we mean by AI maybe in a minute, but it sort of went through ML first, this machine learning thing mm. first, didn't it? Mm. it? Does that have the same relationship with, is that just, again, different icing on the top? <laughs> So I think this is one of the the, the, the challenges um, around AI is it means different things to different people. Um, I actually think it's really simple in that for me, AI is about the ability of a system to learn to complete a task. And if it doesn't learn, it's not intelligent. So often people kind of mix up all sorts of different things and say, oh, that, that's, that, that's AI. Um, sometimes it might just be like a really simple kind of rules-based, automated kind of thing, like a I don't know, like a robot in a in a factory that's making cars or something. For me, that's not intelligent. That's just an automated system. For me, the key thing that we're trying to build into our systems is the ability to learn. So, machine learning is a really strong example of artificial intelligence. That's when most people say AI. I think they actually mean machine learning, and that's where we've just seen such incredible progress over the last 10 or 15 years you know you've probably seen it as much as 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 i but image classifiers that can be better than the human eye at spotting things um all kinds of games that people thought would never be won by a computer have now been um you know routinely routinely um 
beaten. So it's just such an exciting area. But I think it is one where there's an awful lot of excitement and a lot of misunderstandings about about what it is and what it isn't. It is because there's a, there's an amazing definition around AI, isn't it? That you know some people say it has to be sentient. Yeah, and at that point you start thinking, oh my God, what is being developed here? This is quite crazy. I mean, and and therefore, you know, when uh, you speak to like Nina Collins in in America, you know, professor of uh, AI at the um, Naval War College, you know, and she will talk about you know this idea that we are decades away from that sentient moment, but but it, we're not decades away from AI, depending on how you define it, right? AI is like here today. <laughs> we are all interacting with it. You know dozens and dozens of times um, a day for me. You know, when I get up in the morning, I'm checking my newsfeed on my phone. There's AI all over that. There's um, AI in terms of how I interact with all kinds of um, of different systems. So for me, yeah, artificial general intelligence is really exciting. And when that kind of moment happens where we do get some kind of sentient machine, that is going to be a genuine like existential moment for for humanity but what i don't want it to do is to distract us from all of the really important applications of 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 ai that we're having to deal with here today and for me particularly in the military domain there are just so many really impactful areas where we can apply current day ai techniques in a way that would really help warfighters so so we'll get this straight that 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 we're not going to see you know the singularity. This is not what we're working on, right? It's, it's grey goo. Is the world being reduced to you know a sort of <laughs> uh, a matrix type thing? It, that, I mean, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that has that, that we have around us every day, and and we're talking about militarising those applications to to produce better, stronger signatures. So when I talk about AI, I try and categorise it into three buckets. The uh, the first bucket I use is what's called narrow AI, and Almost all of the different applications of AI you will see in use today are what's called narrow AI. And that doesn't mean they're not incredibly powerful, but what it does mean is that they're very highly specialised one-trick ponies that can be fantastic at the task that they're trained to do, but they can't generalise. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got this kind of artificial general intelligence, which people typically define as being an algorithm that can do anything that a human can, any intellectual task that a human can. And that's that kind of moment moment of sentience that you're, you're talking about. And as I said, that's really important. We need to keep a really close eye on it because, you know, if we get that wrong, if we can't control that system, we've got a, a huge, huge existential um, um, problem on our hands. But for me, the interesting bit is in the middle. I call that broad AI. So it's not a general intelligence that can do anything that a human can, but it's not a one-trick pony either. And we're beginning to see some examples of algorithms that are coming out of the universities, out of some of the industry research labs now, and here at DSTL as well, um, that I would call broad AI, which are AI that can begin to generalise, can begin to sort of take what it's learnt in one area and apply it to another area that begin to have some sort of common sense and we're a long way off from that and that will be a massive massive leap when we when we get there but for me I'm much more excited about broad AI than I am about artificial general intelligence because that is a long way away as you say. So in that I'll just try to picture it in my mind just to get it clear so broad AI it's it's not like a turbocharger right which you can stick in any car because it's got to learn something right that's, yep. the, that's the important so it's got to learn something so is it like a new engine management chip that you could throw in any car that would 
improve its performance or, or whatever and actually you could take from a car and put into something else. Is is that what we're talking about? So I would it? say we're still figuring it out. Yeah. It's still um, it's still research. But if you if you think about how a baby learns, so uh, you know, children are incredible learners. If you've got young kids, you will have you will have seen, I don't know, they might um learn that uh, if they push a toy off their high chair it makes a funny clattering ni- noise and you know maybe they learn quite quickly that it breaks and to, to stop doing that they will learn that off you know maybe five or six times and and then they know and then they can then they can apply that if we had to try and teach a machine using narrow ai techniques to do that we need to give it thousands and thousands um uh, of examples so i guess another example might be like a cat um you know, any baby can learn to identify a cat really quickly and then you show them a, a grey cat rather than a black cat, they still know it's a cat. If we have to train uh, an AI to do that, it's actually really hard. Um, if you think about how many different rules you might come up with for what makes a cat a cat, it's got pointy ears, it's got whiskers, it's got a furry furry tail, there will always be some kind of variation you've not thought of. So for me, what I'm what I think broad AI is about is trying to teach machines to learn a little bit more like humans do. Trying to teach them heuristics, essentially. Yeah. A generalization that you can take. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So um, there's an amazing book called um, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow by Danny Kahneman, who was, um, I think it was a Nobel Prize winning kind of um, uh, um, scientist. And he talked about um, in all of our brains, we have what he called system one and what he called system two. And basically, we're really lazy. <laughs> and um, system one is like those heuristics that you mentioned, our like real like snap judgments where we will see something and we will instantly, we don't have to think about it, we just, we just know it. Um, uh, where system two is when we've really got to think. And that's hard work. Um, and so our brains like to be in, 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 in system one. So... Um, you know, I guess where you might get to with all of this is that AI can do some more of that kind of system two thinking, the really kind of hard cognitive stuff, putting what it's learned into context. So, yeah, as I said, AI is um, a really important field, but it's still we're still learning an awful lot. There's an awful lot of research to do, but there's also an awful lot of really mature technology that we can just apply to defensive problems. And so in DSTL... We're in that really exciting space of trying to take the technology that's been proven to work in other areas and really think, how could that help the warfighter? How could that help save lives? How could that give more operational advantage to to the UK? And I find that really exciting. So, And, and it's interesting because I guess for the last five years, right, every senior officer sprinkles AI into every speech that they've talked about and and saying you know this is the pixie dust that's going to solve all our problems for the future. So what's DSTL? What are you working on in AI terms? You know, give us a feel for what that what that what that's like for you. So I think AI is one of the most ubiquitous technologies um, anywhere in defence. It's not an end in itself, but it is a technology that can really transform lots and lots of different parts of defence. So within DSTL, um, we've got scientists and engineers that are conducting all kinds of different research activities from looking at AI for command and control applications 
and how we might be able to increase the um, operational tempo in a in a military headquarters by injecting you know AI into small amounts of what headquarters does. We're not talking about replacing humans. We're talking about um, augmenting some of the kind of manual repetitive tasks that a lot of humans um, undertake. Is that the sort of thing that so narrow AI would probably be very useful for? Yeah. So yeah. I think like Google Maps, you know, that gives me gave me three different ways I could come here and I made a decision from the airport to here yep. based on you know, my assessment of the freeways and mm -hmm. gate. But it would have taken me ages to get yeah. the map out and do all that sort so of stuff. So another example is natural language processing. So how you deal with, with large amounts of text trying to quickly assimilate you know a really long document or even worse you know a pile of really long documents how could we use ai to help the human commander more quickly kind of understand what's going on um uh, around them how can we help them spend more of their time doing the thing that they're really good at which is understanding the operational context um uh, analyzing different courses of action, thinking through the operational risks, and how can we use the machines to take away some of the like really sort of dull discovery work um, that, that 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 can help them. So yeah, command and control we think is a really exciting area. I mean, just the same actually in the the whole kind of intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, the kind of the the RSR space, um, logistics, and cyber. Um, countering fake news that's a really really um, interesting one so it's one of those technologies that is is absolutely everywhere in terms of the, the research that DSCL is doing so I'll give you a few specific projects yeah, if, you're, if, yeah. you're, if you're interested in so uh, team um, that DSCL runs is um, up at the Centre for Intelligence Innovation at RAF Witten um, and that's where you know, there's a lot of um, military analysts that are analysing all kinds of intelligence feeds um, um, from around the world. They've been incredibly busy with um, with, with with the Ukraine um, uh, recently, and in particular, they get an awful lot of satellite imagery that comes in to, to Witten, far more than they've got enough imagery analysts to to train to look at. So, the DSTL team up at RAF Witten have developed a system called Spotter. Spotter uses a narrow AI technique called convolutional neural networks to analyze um, satellite imagery and to extract objects from that imagery so that the, um, the analysts can quickly get to the imagery that they need to look at. So if we can triage all of the satellite imagery that's coming into RAF Witten and prioritize them, and say these are the ones that need a human analyst to go away and look at. That's the problem that that, that Spotter's trying to solve. Is that a bit similar to? I mean, there's, Ukraine has just seen open source intelligence, you know, on a massive scale, in particular in identifying, you know, fighting vehicles, movements, you know, large movements of troops, convoys, ammunition dumps, you know, and actually it's open source that that feels like it's being. Is that similar to that? And is there? Then a difference in what the guys at Witten are doing and and what's been done, you know, in actually quite a small number of open source intelligence companies or places. So we think the the kind of traditional paradigm of intelligence analysis is flipping on its head. Um, for years, it's been you know a large number of 
um, classified sources of, of, of information that have been accessorized by some open sources. And as you rightly say, I think that paradigm has been has been flipped. So, you know, using all of the different open source tools that are available to us, but then using our kind of incredibly capable kind of classified sources to corroborate to get independent verification of what we're seeing in the in the open source community and again you know ai and you know the data science and the data engineering that sits underneath that is absolutely critical if you're going to exploit that sort of fire hose of open source intelligence you're going to need some kind of ai or data science solution to do it you said you were going to give us two advantages so that was one yeah witten so let me give you another one so um in November last year, uh, DSTL uh, had a critical role in delivering the contested urban environment experiment in Portsmouth. This was a really um, large um, uh, experiment with lots of nations all coming to the UK to explore how we could improve um, urban operations and particularly, again, the, 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 the ISR enterprise. So at the uh, the Q experiment, contested urban environment, Q, um, we demonstrated a system called Sapient. Sapient is a an AI-enabled intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance architecture. It allows us to bolt together lots of different AI-enabled sensors um, and then fuse all of those different sensors into like an autonomous sensor network and then again, using AI, choose what to expose to a human operator. So I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a security guard that's been sat in a hot, dusty, smelly porter cabin somewhere with a bank of CCTV monitors in front of them, maybe 20 or 30 CCTV monitors. How well do you think you would do in an eight-hour shift trying to find the 30 seconds of really important information in that in that in that in that in that in that all that information if you're anything like me you'd be awful at it so that's the kind of the problem that sapiens trying to solve so at q we used ai um, in the in the sapient architecture so that different sensors whether it was a electro optic like a camera or a thermal imager or an overhead uav or even like electromagnetic sensing, sensing what's happening in the EM spectrum. We were using AI to fuse all of that information together and then provide like a, uh, a, a an integrated local operating picture was what we called it, to the, the human commander to say, this is a bit unusual, you might want to have a closer look at that. So it's a way, again, of helping, using AI to help the human do better at their role, enabling um, that human um, outcome to be better than it might be otherwise. I mean, what, what, yeah, that strikes me as a, a pattern of life study that a soldier would do from a from a sanger or from a sentry position. Yeah, so that, yeah. yeah that's, okay. yep. Delete your porter cabin and all the screens. We have hundreds of bases over the you know the the conflicts we've been through. A soldier stands on a sentry position and looks out for people, but he also looks out or she looks out for the, the pattern of life in front of them, particularly in a counterinsurgency campaign, right? Because you want to understand. Is this normal? Mm, and mm. this sentient, uh, sapient, 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 sorry, that's yeah. right. sapient yeah, yeah. Um, can can do that for you, or yeah. can, can give you a bit of assurance on top of that. And what what I love about um, sapient so much is it's what's called an open architecture. That sounds really boring, 
but it's actually really important. And why it's so important is that it defines all of the standards, all of the interfaces that allow us to plug together lots of different industry providers' solutions. So, you know, we could have a, a really world-leading um, sensor from, you know, say, Kinetic or a, a company like that, and then we could make sure it can talk to uh, another world-leading um, sensor from, I don't know, um, Northrop Grumman or, 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 or Lockheed Martin or um, and things. And for me, that's where it gets so powerful. You're not just using AI in one little narrow sort of application on one little sensor. You're using AI to make all of these things talk together. And that, I think, is where we get some massive competitive advantage for our people because it can help us get after things like pattern of life. It can help us um, you know, take the absolute best technology from whichever company it comes from and make it all work together. That's really hard, but what an important problem. There's also something else on this, isn't there, that, that I'm, I'm guessing, knowing DSTL for years, that, that you'll also be looking at, which is lots of these techniques, processes that AI uses could be potentially dangerous. They can run in the way of the way that we want wars to be fought in the future, right? They, they run against our morals and our ethics and all mm. of that. So, so I'm imagining that part of DSTL has this program that says, you know, we're going to be governed by these following standards, right? These ethics. And that works alongside. So what, what I've seen a lot in academia is that the, the intellectual discussion about how you're going to use AI systems is some way behind the technology. And and it and it lags. So you've got these great leaps in AI and who can read data and you know what the database could be used for, or just databases being released without that argument of should it be released, should it not be released, how it's going to be used. Now I'm guessing here that there is a sort of I don't know. It's part of your role looking at the you know the the compliance to a bunch of you know codes, morals, ethics, behaviours that we see. This is how we want AI to develop, right? So I think this is absolutely critically important. If you Say uh, there were AI to you know the average person on the street, they start worrying about their job. If you say AI in defence, they start worrying about the Terminator and, and, and killer robots. And for me, understanding how we can responsibly and ethically harness AI for the warfighter um, in a way that makes the world a better place and a safer place really is like a critical challenge for our generation. So I feel really motivated as a scientist working at DSTL try and make sure that we are making good choices about how we apply um, AI to what we do. So we think really hard about, you know, the misuse, what some of the downsides might be. Um, you might have seen that um, in June, uh, the MOD published a document called Ambitious, Safe and Responsible, which described the five ethical principles that um, MOD um, right, I didn't as, read it, mate. Started, so you're going to have yeah, to right. run me through. Well, can you remember the? the final oh, you're going to put me on the spot now. But um, it's all about um, making sure that we don't build AI systems that are biased. Um, making sure that we reduce the overall level of harm and use AI as a as a as a, as a force for good. It's making sure that um, AI systems can still be accountable. Um, a human commander still ultimately has to be accountable for the for the for the for the military that they are applying. Um, there's a big focus on trustworthiness, so making sure that AI systems can be trusted by the commander, but also trusted by the public that ultimately we, we, we all serve. So those ethical principles really run through all of our work here at DSTL. What we 
are increasingly doing is all of the scientists here are working in multidisciplinary teams. So I've got teams of software developers, I've got teams of machine learning engineers and data scientists. Um, but then what we're doing is is budding them up with like AI ethicists who can be working with them right from the outset, not like coming in as a sticking plaster at the end, um, but really like working with them in partnership. We also work with like user experience designers and human factors experts to make sure that we can really put the human at the center of all the systems we build. We also work really closely with the military domain experts. They're really, really important because they help the scientists and engineers understand how how this can help. So yeah, in answer to your question, um, ethics and responsible AI, it's absolutely the heart of our approach. And then we're trying to use this kind of multidisciplinary way of working to really make sure that we design systems that work um, and that, that, that really make the world a better place. It's interesting at the start of that, you talked about bias though, because because you know, having read a bit about AI, that there is a there is a increasing worry from some academic circles that you know bias in AI, even from right down, you know, the database that you collect at the start, will give you a different answer. So if you go back to cats, mm-hmm. you know, if if it was just about you know whiskers and uh, nose and ears, then you know fifty percent of what you get would be dogs. And if you put that into a C two system or an ISR system, you could come up with the wrong answer. So. So, what are the big risks in AI? If if we you know if we've if if we're really thinking about bias and our level of trust and accountability, what are the what are the real risks that we're left with with AI that that keep you up at night? Yeah. So, I think bias is a real challenge, and it's almost inescapable in that no matter how hard we try, bias is always baked into our datasets. And if the way the machines learn is through some kind of data, which is inevitable. Um, you know, it's almost impossible to completely remove that bias from the system. But the thing that gives me hope is that we're not, we, we shouldn't be holding our AI systems to an unachievable standard. We are all biased. Uh, every human has has his or her own biases, and that you know that's dependent on you know how we've grown up, what experiences we, we, we we've had in our lives. Well, I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier. You're trying to teach common sense, and that is part of what bias does, isn't it? Yeah, the yeah. heuristics we talked about yeah. allows the human to quickly identify a cat because yeah. their biases teach it quickly. That's probably a cat. It meows. It's got four legs, ten yeah. pointy ears. Yeah, but actually, it might not be. It might be something slightly different. Yeah. Um, so but there's a real tension there, then, isn't there? Yeah. What, 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 what I think um, helps, though, is that I can measure the bias in an AI system. If you had to put a percentage on me of how biased I am, a different thing, how on earth would you do that? I can actually write down a percentage of how biased a, a machine learning system is. So um, a very um, well-known and really um, unfortunate example is the fact that facial recognition doesn't work as well on people of different ethnic origins because a lot of the faces in the training set have been white white faces you know that is an unacceptable outcome but the good thing is i can sit down and i can work out repeatedly how many how many times the ai system gets it wrong if i can measure it i can fix it um so for me when people talk about bias in ai systems it's a really important problem but i worried that people sometimes attach a sort of a, an unattainable gold standard of this AI system can have no bias in it whatsoever, and not recognising that actually we're biased as humans. And if we can make AI systems that are less biased than humans, 
that at least is a net positive. For me, a lot of my time is spent trying to kind of um, manage the hype, if you see what I mean. So the analogy that I like to draw is relating to kind of autonomous cars and how um, actually I think what we're going to see is the gradual introduction of more and more AI, more and more autonomy into the still human-led process of driving a car. Um, and um, you know, it might be helping you um, stay within your lane, it might be um, pre-priming your brakes or even automatically activating your brakes if you're about to get into into a crash. And I think what we're going to see in the automotive sector is the kind of the gradual kind of introduction of more and more AI and autonomy into the car driving process. And it might be in, you know, I don't know how many years, but at some point, you know, we'll go to fully self-driving cars. But I think actually it's happening a lot slower than people expected because of those trust issues and some of the fatalities we see. I think we're going to see exactly the same thing in the military domain. And a bit like we were talking about in a military headquarters, how how can we begin to just improve the quality of life for um, officers in a in a military headquarters initially in some fairly small focused tasks, and then incrementally getting more and more um, AI into the system till you know maybe in, in ten or fifteen years some of those things you mentioned might be possible. But what I don't want to do is to overinflate expectations, get people thinking that AI is some kind of silver bullet or kind of um magic that can that can solve all of their problems it's a really powerful technology but we need to we need to take baby steps to get to the big changes it's at the start of a military career right it took a long time for the military to trust me to do anything so i imagine you're absolutely right Um, i think about this a bit like um you know how we've introduced flight into military operations how we've introduced um precision guided weapons, how we've introduced kind of the manoeuvrist type approach. It will take time to figure out how we can really incorporate AI into our ways of working and our kind of military tradecraft. It's not going to be something that's going to happen you know, overnight in a year or two. We can, we can definitely get some quick wins, but this is a, a marathon, not a sprint. This is something that is incredibly profound in terms of its potential impact on on on, on the military um, um, domain and we need to be in this for the long haul and it's so I mean I I, I just think I, I feel so um admiring of all of the experimentation and all of the user-led stuff there are people all over the MOD who are just rolling their sleeves up and seeing um what they can do um in this space and it's that kind of um spirit of kind of um experimentation and trying and learning and failing and 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 things that's going to get us the outcomes um um, that we want and then you may have also seen that what we're now doing as part of the defense ai strategy is establishing a defense ai center and that's really trying to support all of those different local innovators around defense and make it easier for them to make changes in their area but that that's the essential bit right because you're talking about you know already we have all these sort of ai ml systems that are already using maybe the same databases in a lot of circumstances they're all putting it together maybe coming out with different answers everyone's developing these sometimes in stovepipes someone's got to be able to draw them together so they can exchange so they can be used to validate and verify so they can share knowledge and understanding i mean that that's got to be the 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 keystone and that is exactly what the Defence AI Centre or the DAKE 
um, as we call it, has been created to do. So the DAKE is a partnership between uh, UK Strategic Command, um, Defence Equipment and Support, DSTL, and then working with all the different frontline commands and, 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 and top-level budgets across defence. And exactly what you just said is what the DAKE is trying to do. It's not about trying to do all of Defence's AI work in one place or, or, or one, one, um, one building. It's about trying to build a community across across defence. It's about trying to share best practice between different areas. It's about trying to come up with common solutions that everybody's banging their head against and figure out how we can solve it once for everybody. And I think perhaps most importantly, it's about being the kind of the visionary champion for AI within defence, really helping defence understand what AI could, could do for it. So... Um, uh, as well as my work here at DSTL, I've got I'm leading DSTL's contribution into the into the DAKE, um, and so it's a really exciting time to be working um, in AI in defence. It gets back to that 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 just that talk about the you know the the central pillar for putting all this together. But it gets back to one of your points about trustworthiness, because you know if you've developed a system with AI right that looks at databases, you know you understand. You, you'll trust it, right? The same way Fusty would trust, you know, some of his his section, a, a, a platoon, a company. You know, you would trust those people. You know which are the good, which are the bad. You wish to take with a pinch of salt. I would trust, you know, different missile systems or radars or sailors. You know, the, we have a different relationship with trust. But then to suddenly give Frosty a completely new AI system, going, this is going to give you, you know, your answers to your ISR. There's there's a there's got to be a point in there that that trust becomes a really big part that we've got to overcome rather than just you know I see a raw radar return that's where it is you you get to different I, I, I couldn't agree more and for me it's about this kind of incremental process that I was um, that I was describing earlier so for example um, we do an awful lot of experimentation work in DSTL and working with our um, other partners in in, in frontline commands. And to make that work, we use, need to use what's called agile techniques. You might have heard of DevOps or DevSecOps. The new sort of buzzword is MLOps, machine learning operations. But for me, what's so important about that is you need to get the people developing the systems, the scientists and the engineers that can build these systems, you need to get them alongside people like Frosty and kind of really understanding what are the problems that you're encountering? What are the things that would make you trust this system? What are the things that would that would that would that would be a problem for you? How can we make this work for you? How can we um, do that kind of support? And that that MLOps approach is become the kind of the industry norm in the civil sector. It's how banks, it's how insurance companies, you know, that's how everybody um, delivers AI into operational use. And so, what we're trying to do with the Defence AI Centre is take some of that industry best practice and get it working for us within defence. So, you know, I know, um, you know, warfighters, you know, they've got a, a huge um, task on their hands, but if there are you know, a little bit of time that we can, they can spare to work with the scientists and engineers to help us understand how the systems that we're building can be made to work for them, where we can get our hands on real data, that is like gold dust. Um, those are the things that are going to help us build those those trustworthy systems. And what we're really trying to do is, is harness 
best and the brightest minds that we can get anywhere in the UK and get them working on our on our problems. So in DSTL, we're working with some really like world-leading AI industry companies. We've got links that we got to some of the best universities in the world. We want to get all of that brain power solving your problems. Um, so that, I think, that kind of agile approach, working really closely between the scientists and the end users, that is the way that we'll get to that kind of trustworthy state that you mentioned. Interesting that you focused there on the UK. And, and you know, when you look at the UK's budget, government spending on AI, it's pretty big, right? But but it's tiny compared to the US and even India. Israel has been, has been working with ML systems for... Uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defence Force, for a, a long time, like operationalizing it, very, very you know, frontline focused. Maybe even without some of the more, uh, without some of the ethical and moral restrictions that that you might be, you know, that we might have to work with here, right? And that's uh, and that's fine. So, how much of this stuff do you do that is just UK, and how much is done in cooperation with others? How are you able to pull in? Like the big lessons from India or Thailand or Australia or wherever, is there a sort of Five Eyes NATO working groups that you relate this to, or is it all very stovepipe? Because this stuff really is just—it's still behind the curtain, right? In many circumstances. So adopting AI is absolutely a team sport, and if we think that we've got all the answers here in in MOD or or, or DSTL, we're kidding ourselves. And I spend a huge amount of my time building. Um, relationships, doing technical exchanges with other companies, with international partners. So you know, we obviously do um, a huge amount of work with the with the US, and we have joint teams um, that are um, developing um, solutions. Um, also with the um, AUKUS, um, the, the trilateral um, MOU that's been established recently, there is an AI working group um, under that initiative. We have a Five Eyes experimentation thing. So that contested urban environment experiment I told you about, that was a, um, a big Five Eyes experiment. I think we had over 30 or 40 systems that came from all of the different international partners. And then finally, we're, I think, trying to expand our approach out to some of the international partners that maybe we don't traditionally work with quite so much kind of beyond the kind of the NATO nations. So, for example, I'm part of something called the AI Partnership for Defence, which is a 16-nation initiative that involves the likes of Singapore, Japan, South Korea, um, uh, Israel, apart from that, actually, as well as um, some of the more traditional kind of NATO partners that you would expect to see. So it is massively a team sport. Uh, the other thing I just quickly want to say on that is that we are so pleased with how um, engaged some of the big technology companies are being um, with defence. They want to use the benefit of all of their experience to help us get the right outcomes for AI within defence. So as well as all the normal kind of defence primes that we're working with, we're also talking to the big tech companies and trying to draw upon their huge resources to help us um, get after this problem for the warfighters. Yeah, I've got, I got two final questions for you, Steve. Mm. One, is, one is what keeps you up at night? you know in in ai with dstr what keeps you up at night and you sit there going yeah i mean is it is it the commute to work is it budget is it how far you're allowed to run you know your lunchtime what is it that that keeps you up at night what worries you most about about this this is maybe a couple of different answers to that question so 
the first answer is maybe that kind of big generational challenge. I could imagine some futures where AI is a, is a wonderful force for good that really reduces the overall level of harm in warfare, that saves lives, that helps our commanders make better, quicker decisions, um, that makes the business of warfighting you know, uh, 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 you know, less, 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 less um, you know, bad for, 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 for the world. But I could also imagine some, some horrendous um, scenarios, particularly, for example, like information warfare and like misinformation flying around. So for me, I feel really responsible as a scientist and engineer trying to make sure that we take the right steps that get us towards that kind of outcome. What we could see is a kind of a race to the bottom where countries kind of, you know, sort of taking more and more steps that really push us down a, a path. So I, I worry about that. That feels to me like a, a, a really big challenge. Um, the second thing I, I worry about is what we call the AI paradox. So it's quite easy to do, well, it's not easy, but, but it's easier to do an experiment in a lab and show, doesn't this AI system look great? But then there's a big difference between that fantastic experiment in a lab and rolling out an operational capability to tens of thousands of military users. So how can we get more AI into the hands of warfighters in a way that they can trust it and, and, and rely on it. So that's the second thing I worry about. And then the third thing and the final thing is about um, the best and the brightest brains. AI is one of the most sought after skills anywhere in the world um, at the moment. We need to make sure that we can attract the best and the brightest people to come and work on some of these really important problems. If we're gonna solve some of these things, we need the smartest, the most committed, the most dedicated people who can come and work with us. So for me, making sure that we've got access to the best talent that we can, and DSTL's got a fantastic role, and we, you know, we're working really hard to bring all those bright minds together, but the more bright minds we can get solving our problems to give operational advantage to end users, the better. So, yeah, those are... And I guess that, that, that links in perfectly to my final question to you, which is... Listen, you you know a lot about AI. You're in a, you're in a industry, you know, an area of industry that is seriously in demand globally. Um, you could walk out of here into you know something with rock star wages, which is not something that government pays civil servants, and, and you know that's the fact of life, right? Industry would would desperately love to have get their hands on you and uh, and pay you well, and you take your family on you know, weekend breaks to the Seychelles or wherever it would be. I mean, you would have like a really good, like, what keeps you at DSTL? What keeps you working for the government? What is the, what is that thing that says, yeah, I'm staying here. I'm sorry, darling. We're going on a leaky tenant in Cornwall again. <laughs> well, what is it that, that keeps you here? So I love what I do. And for me, um, I, what matters to me is using my expertise to make a difference, to save lives, to really... Um, you know, make sure that, that, that our warfighters have got the best support they can possibly get. You know, we ask our armed forces to put their lives on the line, put themselves in harm's way to keep us all safe. If, as a scientist, I can do something that can that can help them, I feel like that is my moral responsibility um, to do that. And, and, and frankly, um, I get paid enough to have a a good quality of life. I'm not getting rock stars 
wages. I couldn't afford a maybe a, a, a leaky Butlins um, thing rather than a leaky tent. But um, um, for me, what's much more important is feeling like I've got a purpose in 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 what I do. Feeling like I'm able to um, really be working at the bleeding edge of of, of, of of science and engineering. So for me, I just get so motivated. I've worked in university labs in the past and um at dstl i get the chance to see my science being put into action in the real world and that is priceless i hope you enjoyed that podcast and finding out more about what dstl is doing with artificial intelligence if you enjoyed that podcast please do like and subscribe and leave us some feedback and don't forget you can head to wavelroom.com to read our latest content. Thanks again, and hopefully we'll see you next time on A Soldier, A Sailor and A Scientist.